Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we are going to talk about Xi Jinping's capitalist smackdown. Sparks a $1 trillion reckoning. That's the title of The Big Take today. And Tom Orlick, one of the authors, joins us to discuss. Um, and it's been such an interesting process to watch, Tom. So many people have different ideas of what's going on from the ant uh, IPO to um, what happened with Didi and now with the EdTech um, move. The question is, is it about, you know, uh, Xi Jinping's grip on power or is this really about um, data security or could it be about supporting the middle class? What, what do you see? I think it's all of the above, Matt. Um, Xi Jinping in 2022 will be looking for the nod to take a third term as president, third term as chair of the Communist Party. So building public support ahead of that is crucial. At the same time, I think this is a Chinese government which is willing to wield the kind of the big stick of authoritarian power in order to try and deliver on some social priorities. So that includes national security, making sure that sensitive data isn't leaking over overshore. It also means taking a big swing at the monopoly power of companies like Alibaba, Tencent, making sure that workers, making sure that smaller startups get a fair shake. So there's kind of the crackdown within the market and targeting private sector companies. How does that then translate into the Chinese economy? So. I think what we're seeing is a Chinese government which is willing to take a short-term blow to the markets, maybe even a short-term blow to growth, in order to deliver on what they see as more important long-term development priorities. They'll take a swing at some of the biggest tech entrepreneurs in the country, Jack Ma of Alibaba first among them, because they think that having a, that having big monopolies, strangling competition in the economy is not going to be good for China's longer term growth, not going to be good for China's squeezed middle class. How do we know when this is over? I mean, <laughs> or, or what's the next shoe to drop? That's a really good question. Um, so we've already had China's regulators come out swinging against the big tech companies. Alibaba, Meituan, the giant delivery company, Didi, China's answer to Uber. We've seen them coming, coming out swinging against property. One of the big frustrations for China's middle class is that property prices are too expensive. They can't get their first hand on the bottom rung of the property ladder. And they've come out swinging against ed tech. The concern there is that children are spending too much time and parents are spending too much money on the educational rat race. Where do they go next? Well, one possibility could be the private medical industry. China's households, they want to educate their children, they want to buy a house, they want to be healthy. And so I think it's quite likely that China's policymakers, China's regulators, will take a close look at private healthcare providers next, try and make sure they're not gouging Chinese households, trying to make sure they're delivering quality care. How does the U.S. fit into all of this, Tom? So. 
historically, for the last 40 years, we had a trajectory where China was moving towards being a more market-based economy and a more open economy. And that meant closer ties with the US. What's happened in the last four or five years, especially since the Trump administration had their turn in the White House, is that China has realized, you know what? We're facing a more hostile global environment. We're facing a US which is going to impose trade tariffs, impose sanctions, try and ally with other countries to sort of put limits on our tech development. And what that's done is it's put China into kind of defense mode. And so we are seeing China saying, you know what? Maybe we don't want our tech companies to IPO in the United States. Maybe we need to do more to boost self-sufficiency at home in terms of our ownership of key technologies and in terms of who's financing our development. So, in the, I mean, the, the, for me, the most interesting thing is that uh, one man, or at least the head of the party, can do this. Right, he doesn't have to deal with all the special interests and lobbyists that will keep will hold America back possibly in trying to improve what we've what we've got going on here. Same, I'm sure, is true in the UK, etc., across Western democracies. How powerful is Xi Jinping? Do I just see it that way, or is is he really the man? Well, I mean, she who must be obeyed was the kind of the joke uh, when Xi Jinping came into power and sort of started wielding the big stick of authoritarian governance to get things done. I mean, certainly she is an incredibly powerful leader, probably the most powerful leader China has had since Chairman Mao. Um, but that comparison with Chairman Mao, of course, also highlights some of the risks with an authoritarian governance system. Yes, we might look enviously at a Chinese system that can get things done really quickly, push past vested interests that try and block reforms. But let's not forget that authoritarian governments can get things right really quickly. They can also get things wrong really quickly as well. Just quickly, because we did get PMIs from China over the weekend, what do you make of the deceleration in growth there? Has it been over-exaggerated? So there's a couple of things going on, uh, Kaylee. Um, so the first one is a kind of a normalization of China's growth. Right. China was first into the COVID shock, also first out of the COVID shock. They had their period of rapid acceleration at the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Now growth is steadying back towards a more normal level. The more troubling thing, though, is that we've also now got the virus coming back in different parts of China, mm. some cases in Nanjing, some cases in Wuhan, which you remember was the epicenter of the virus last year. That return of the virus is prompting more controls on what people can do, more social distancing, and that is also weighing on growth heading into the second half. All right, Tom, thanks very much. Tom Orlick joining us there with his uh, story, Xi Jinping's capitalist smackdown sparks a trillion dollar reckoning. That is our big take for the day. You can check that out on the Bloomberg terminal if you like, just type N-I big take go. Now I want to bring in David Katz right now. He uh, joins us from Matrix Asset Advisors, where he is the chief investment officer. And David, we're just hearing from Dave Wilson about the optimism in this market. We're seeing targets raised left and right. Earnings are uh, are proving out 89% growth from the same quarter last year. 
what do you think? I mean, how much further can we see stocks continue to run? Well, we think the underlying environment is quite positive. The economy is very much on the mend. As you just said, earnings for companies have been very strong. That 89% level of beating consensus is probably the best we've seen in over a decade. And interestingly, the beats have been at 10 and 20 cents per share rather than 1 and 2 cents. So there are a lot of good things out there, and interest rates are low. Having said that, you've had an enormous rally over the last 12 and 15 months, so we think a lot of those good things are priced into the market. Hmm. From here, we're expecting a good deal of volatility, both good and bad. We think you probably will have some delta scares and some other geopolitical scares. We'd be buyers into the weakness. We would not chase rallies like today. We think ultimately stocks end the year higher than they are today, but we do expect some rotations of things that haven't worked to do better and some of the hottest areas to slow down. So, David, when you're thinking about the equity market outlook, do you just have to make a decision to ignore whatever bonds are doing? I'm looking at a 10-year yield now down around 1.18%. Yeah, we don't get it on the bond side. The economy is robust, inflation is picking up, and we think that the bond rates and yields lower is an outlier. And if anything, if you own intermediate or long-term bonds, we think this is a great time to be selling, locking in your profit, and shortening maturities. From a stock market perspective, on one hand, it's very good when you have low interest rates like this because it makes stocks that much more competitive. And we don't think the bond market is really foretelling a slowdown in the economy or really any significant issues. Let's talk about some of your top stock picks. Um, what are you most excited about? When you come to the office or when, you, when you're talking to, to, to a client, what, what uh, gets you going? Well, it's an odd thing. The things that have worked over the last year are probably what we're least excited about because a lot of the good things are already in their stock prices. So we've got a lot of technology that's had a great run. We're less enthusiastic from here. So what we're most excited about are companies that really haven't done a lot in terms of the stock price, but the businesses are very good. So we like the financials a lot here. They've had a good run in the first six months. They slowed down in the last month. We think that's a pause that refreshes. And we think you can buy companies like Bank of New York, M&T Bank, P. NC, Truist, all very good. We also like healthcare, which has been an absolute dog uh, in the last seven months. We think that's poised to do better. And there are a few overlooked technology companies like a Cisco or a Fiserv that we think have good long-term prospects, um, but really haven't had this type of rally that technology overall has. How do you think about pricing power when factoring, you know, what stocks do you want to own, what you're going to put in a portfolio, especially considering the pretty serious input cost elevation we are seeing uh, a number of companies talking about in their earnings calls. Well, it looks like most companies feel that they can raise prices. There just is a one or two quarter lag. So if you look at the consumer staples, for example, many of them have lowered expectations for the year because prices rose quicker than they were able to raise their own uh, prices. Uh, we think ultimately there's going to be a catch-up there. So you just want to be aware of it. But again, even in terms of some of the consumer staples, we think you can put money in uh, simply because the stocks haven't done a lot and they're cheaper than they've been in a very long time. So a company like Coca-Cola or Kimberly-Clark uh, or Kellogg, we think are very fairly priced with good prospects over the next 18 months. And again, when the economy ultimately slows down, those stocks could become attractive to investors again. What about Viacom? You've got that on your list. Um, and I'm just wondering if the reopening has anything 
uh, in store for Viacom because, you know, obviously we were all stuck inside watching their content, but now we can actually get out. Well, we think that certain players um, will not do as well as people get out, but in terms of Viacom, they have a robust movie business, and that movie business is going to get a uh, a lot better. So we don't think they're hurt by the reopening play. We think on the margin it's probably a little bit better. And it's a very interesting company here. Stocks at about 10 times earnings. We think they definitely are going to be a winner uh, in the streaming space. You get CBS, which is a great business, uh, and Paramount, which is a great business, and you're not paying a whole lot for it so we think ultimately somebody could buy them or the stock is worth 60 to 70 so we think it's a low risk investment we had owned viacom earlier this year we had bought it um, a year or two ago we sold it anywhere from 60 to 100 uh, when the stock came down in the end of march we rebought yeah. our entire position and continue to add to it here David, thanks very much. David Katz there talking to us from Matrix Asset Advisors, where he is Chief Investment Officer David Katz and the Katz family also own those stocks that we were talking about. Just uh, in the interest of full disclosure, this is Bloomberg. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in European markets. We're looking at... Um, well, we saw bigger gains, I guess, in European markets uh, across the board than we than we have in U.S. markets today. Um, but the question is, are there bigger gains to come, especially if you believe the reopening trade um, has yet to really hit? Tim Craighead joins us. He is a senior strategist, senior European strategist, also the director of research content for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Tim, um, what's your read through, when, especially when you look at earnings in Europe versus earnings in the U.S.? So, Matt, um, we're, we're pretty constructive. If you look towards, you look out towards the end of the year, the next several months, um, set August aside, um, we think that you've got global economic recovery um, that transitions to expansion. We we are in the transitionary inflation camp as opposed to the persistent inflation camp. We think companies can manage through it, and that sets up a pretty good backdrop, especially for companies that are cyclically oriented. Um, you know, 2Q results themselves have fed into a lot of good evidence supporting this sort of construct in our mind. Well, and the earnings growth has been really solid too, Tim. On the stock 600, I'm looking at average earnings growth of the companies reported thus far of 176%. I mean, that wow. is wild. And you're seeing revisions, uh, upward revisions accelerating as well. How big of a drop-off are we going to see in the third and fourth quarter, though? Yeah, um, it's, it, it's, a good, it's a good point. Um, we're about, at, on our count, um, uh, we're about three quarters done, uh, if you look at market cap um, uh, having reported. Um, you know, our number, and we're calculating it slightly differently, is 160%. But the important point is that when we started the earnings reporting period, that number was 130. So it's accelerated through the results period. And interesting, another stat for you, um, we're looking at roughly 65% having beat estimates 25% having missed. Now, European earnings are, are typically a lot more blah than in the U.S., uh, where you know U.S. companies know to to, to keep expectations low and beat. Um, that doesn't happen so much over here. So these are these are extraordinary. 
Um, there is no doubt you have to see a slowdown in, as you get into 3Q and 4Q. But it's not so much the slowdown because the market already knows that um, in, in our mind. It's that revisions continue to tick up. And it's not only revisions to overall 2021 and 22 earnings. They are up. Um, and that's true across most of the European major markets. But actually, even margin expectations are rising, um, which is particularly surprising given some of the concerns that others have been voicing about inflation and, you know, it's going to hit margins. It's true except for consumer staples. That's a problem. What, um, what's the problem with consumer staples? Yeah. It, Supply yeah, side? From, from, yeah. And well, I mean, from our perspective, they just don't have the economic leverage to be able to manage through um, rising costs. Um, I mean, to, to us, that's the one segment uh, of, of the market um, where the whole sort of cost inflation, higher raw material costs is, is more problematic. And interesting enough, if we look at the 2Q results, that's the one place that actually are showing negative earnings growth. I mean, they're down 1% as opposed to the overall market up whatever, 160, 170%. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they, they stand out. And valuations aren't cheap either. Can we talk about buybacks and dividends? Mm. Are, are we going to sure. keep seeing those increased? Yeah, quick answer is we think so. Um, and yes, you'll see what the results we're seeing show um, better free cash flow, better cash generation. Um, importantly, then you got to think about where is that being utilized. And M&A is going to happen. Uh, done some interesting work on that. Uh, CapEx is going to happen. We need that to have a sustained economic recovery um, in addition to some of these policy measures like the European Recovery Fund or the U.S. Infrastructure Plan, et cetera. Uh, but importantly, shareholder remuneration is coming back too. Dividends, buybacks are, on, are rising. A big thing in Europe has been the restriction on uh, financials, specifically banks, um, uh, dividends and buybacks, and that's being lifted by the ECB. Um, you know, nice announcement by HSBC just today with their results, um, uh, actually bringing forward um, uh, their announcement relative to what we had not thought was going to happen until next year. So I think it's good news. The other one I would mention to you that I think is interesting are the commodities. Um, the miners and the oils, which are so big, for example, for the FTSE 100, right. um, they're still being restrained on their capex. They're bumping dividends and buyback, which is great. And if they can restrain the capex, then you've got a, an opportunity for a more sustained um, uh, sort of price environment for them right. as opposed to thinking it's going to be boom bust. All right, Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Tim Craighead there, Senior European Strategy Director of Research Content for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking to us about the earnings uh, landscape in Europe. This is Bloomberg. That would have been the big take, but we are we'll talking now to Marcus Ashworth. Excuse me, Marcus. Pleasure. I can be a big take if you want me to be, or even a big fake. <laughs> no, no, no. You're the real deal. And now I remember we're going to talk about the uh, stay-at-home 
economy, the stay-at-home recovery. Are we stuck there? Uh, what is your big take on that issue? Well, I'm, I'm actually getting uh, increasingly worried, as I say, sitting at home uh, rather than in the office. Uh, and I was in the office uh, on Friday, but you know, it shocked me how empty everything was around the city of London, the tubes, the, the, that's the subway, the, the trains, uh, shops which are closed. I mean, this is, I know it's summer, and I know we're still theoretically in, in some pandemic, but we're supposed to have had Freedom Day in the UK. Uh, it really hasn't happened. It's been a damp squib, and I think what worries me is that Oh, damp squib. Damp squib, huh? I have heard that phrase more times in the last week, considering Sorry. that I'd never heard Does that everybody know what a damp squib week? is? I'm not sure our American listeners necessarily do. And I think a lot of British people don't even really know what a damp squib is. <laughs> Marcus, care to explain? Something that doesn't light very well, should we say. A squib is something you used to light something else, uh, <laughs> e.g. say fireworks, something like that. No, it, it just means that, you know, it's not going to go off. It's not going to go bang. Nothing's going to happen. And... You know, we've, we've got a real worry here because, you know, the, the train lines are empty. Yeah. The, the cities are, are, are empty, and that's because people are not going back into, into the city centers, which means restaurants, hospitality, etc. None of it flows, none of it works. Now, we're seeing a lot of sectors doing better than they were before. That's because, you know, but they will mean revert back to normal. You know, not all the restaurant bookings are going to stay high forever, um, all the Zoom meetings, etc. But... It's the stuff which isn't going to get back to 100%. It's stuck at 90 or 95% now, and they need an extra boost, and they're not getting it, and the government ought to get a bit clever. Well, isn't this just the idea of the new normal, that we can never go back to pre-COVID? Well, I mean, that's what we want to try and avoid. I'm not saying everything should go back to how it was. I'm saying there are better ways of doing it. We can all talk forever about Build Back Better and all the other platitudes. But you've got to get people back into the city mostly, and you've got to get people away from hunkering down and feeling scared of going back into society and a normal life. Otherwise, there will be permanent scarring, and you won't be able to get that back. And that's a mistake. I think that there are better things that can be done, particularly even if it minds subsidizing commuter fares and e.g. tourists coming into the center of London. It can be done for the rest of this year or for a few months. They did a thing called Eat Out to Help Out last summer. It, it perhaps did work too well being a super spreader event, but it got people back into restaurants and bars. And the government needs to do something similar. I'm sure where London goes, it will be exactly the same thing in New York City, from what everyone tells me. <laughs> so there's, there, there surely, though, are pieces of this that are going to stay with us forever, right? I mean, are people going to be masking forever? Are we going to be getting boosters forever? That's not your concern. Your concern is, uh, I, I'm trying to think of a corner shop in London. Greg's will uh, no longer be open for sausage rolls all day. It's, it's not just that. It's just that, the, that we're not careful. We're going to end up with a, a halfway house whereby it's not going to satisfy anything close to the economic recovery we could yeah. and should be having. And that at the end of the day is get the engine of the economy going, which means people moving around, doing things. You, you're sure it still means you can do a three-day week or you can work from home sometimes. That doesn't mean we, we lose all the benefits of what, of what we've seen in the last year or two, but we really ought to get the economy functioning as best we can and that means, you know, transportation. It means. Well, oh, but if we're working, right. if we're only working three days a week in the office, uh, and I've noticed here, Marcus, the same things that you noticed there. Um, it's much worse than in Berlin. I have to say, I walk around our headquarters here at 731 Lexington Avenue, which used to be surrounded by businesses mm -hmm. that were always, you know, full of, you know, workers that were here for the day. 
so many of these businesses have closed down, not just like closed for now, but empty yeah. and store for rent signs on the windows. That yeah. that doesn't Imagine seem like it's going to come landlord. back very quickly. If you're a real estate landlord, this is permanent, permanent scarring. You mm-hmm. know, we're not going to see the end of this in another five or six years. And that's, I think, where people aren't understanding. They aren't thinking through this fully, is that people have their so-called quality of life. And there's, there's a, there is a happy medium. and We're not at that happy medium. We need to get stop hunkering down and get some semblance of normality back, get the economy moving again, and we will all benefit from it. But if we don't, we will miss, we will miss out, I think, particularly in the inner cities, not just, but particularly in the inner cities. So, Marcus, there's getting people using transportation and going out, doing things. There's also getting people to deploy their savings. And as you point out in your piece, the savings ratio is nearly three times the pre-pandemic level. What entices consumers to start, you know, emptying their bank account? Well, it's, it's a propensity to spend, and, and the, the people who are saving the money are, are the older, wealthier people who, who have less propensity to spend anyway. So we're just, we're just confounding, and these people may never come back into the economy in the way they were before if they don't go into the inner cities. They don't go to the theater. They don't go to, to restaurants or let alone go to work in, in offices. But you know, there, is, there is a knock-on effect, which I think is, is something which the government will end up permanently missing out on on, on, a, on, a, on a percentage point or two of, of GDP, and that has knock-on effects for taxes and a whole raft of other different stuff. So, you know, there's been some intelligent stuff done, uh, the furlough schemes, a whole raft of other things. They've missed a trick in the UK, certainly, particularly with subsidizing rail fare to get people back into the office and not feel sticker shock, which is, I don't know about you, I walk around in restaurants and, and bars in the city now, I am shocked about how much, you know, food costs, a glass yeah. of wine costs, a beer. It's, it's a, it's a, people are price gouging. And that is putting people off even coming into this. It is unbelievable. I went to J.G. Mellon's the other day, which is, I think, 74th and Lex. Have you mm-hmm. been there? Somewhere on the Upper East Side, I have. The best burgers in New York. They're, they're up there. I mean, I know everybody <laughs> has his own idea of what the best burger in New York is. I ordered a bacon cheeseburger with my kid brother. We both had fries and a beer. $90. Wow. Were the fries extra? That's how I, they get you. Yeah, but $90 yeah. for a burger and fries? <laughs> Um, it was it was pretty insane. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. Marcus Ashworth there, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, talking to us about what needs to be done in order to get the economy back to full speed. Um, we're not there yet, and especially with these Delta spikes, it seems like it could take a while longer than you may have thought as well. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.